I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics, like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. What does Matrix, Rebel Without a Cause, and the classic weepy movie, Titanic have in common. You might be surprised to hear what they have in common is that they are all gay. And in fact, according to Milo and Nico, all films are gay. Milo and Nico are an essentially a bloody funny couple. They analyse classic movies and discover that actually, deep in the narrative, are gay tropes. If you love films, if you love film criticism, this is the podcast for you. With their tongue firmly in their cheek, Milo and Nico convince you that every film is gay. Go download it from a podcatcher of your choice today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Royful Brown who is back home in sunny California. Though looking out the window today, uh, the sun has decided not to show its face. It's been a tumultuous week in British politics. We've had Liz Truss, a Prime Minister for just now some 45 days, who yesterday announced her resignation. She handed in a P45 to His Majesty the King. With us today we have Paul Dudridge and Steve O'Neill who are going to help us make sense out of yet another Conservative Party race but also what this means for British politics but first let's have a little bit of fun let's throw over to the leader of the opposition young Keon Wayne Stanzi you've got 15 seconds my guy let's go God corporation tax cut God 20p tax cut God two-year energy freeze God tax-free shopping God economic credibility God and a 
Shadow's best friend, the formula chancellor. He's gone, gone. Does not make me chuckle that, but this is actually incredibly serious. Paul Dudridge, I'm going to come to you first. Our economic credibility is gone, isn't it? If Britain could stand by anything, it was stability and economic probity. That's now gone. Well, I I don't think it's any worse than it's ever been. Look, the thing is that Western economies for a long time have decided to just be, they judge their prudence by how much debt they can accrue. I think that what Liz Truss and Kwarteng were trying to achieve was a proper old-style conservative budget, which was to, as they kept going on about, growth. This is a very broad brushstroke, but we are now judged as to how much we can borrow as opposed to how much we can make. The basic principle for me of conservatism is what's been lost in the Conservative Party. We have the policies of the Labour Party currently in the front bench kind of no different now to the current Conservative government. And so I'm not a big believer in this idea that we have this economic probity. We've been massively in debt for a very long time. We've been running a deficit for a very long time. We spent like three quarters of a trillion pound, I think, on lockdown. The idea that we've suddenly shot ourselves because of 32 billion pound, I just don't really buy the story. If this is the new paradigm, and I'm not saying that you're wrong here, why is it that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss didn't get that memo then? The, the die was always cast. You've got to remember, she was not wanted by the Parliamentary Conservative Party, Parliamentary Conservative members. And so I think that, you know, going to the actual members of the Conservative Party was almost, has almost turned into just a performative act. She was never going to be allowed to do anything. I'm not saying she's a great politician or anything, but what they were offering, think about it. It's like this this mini budget wasn't that radical. You know, it was bringing income tax down to the same level that it was under Blair and Brown. But, but surely it yeah. was a case of keeping spending where it was, cutting taxes, and then to bridge that gap, massive borrowing. Steve O'Neill, Paul seems to say... Can I just say- finish that? Can I just come, on. Can I just come to that final point? Yes. What I'm saying is, and this is the this is the principle, and I'll shut up then because other people need to get in. I was just saying, yes, she was borrowing. She was prepared to borrow, you know, at, at we borrowed for lockdown, we borrowed for wars, etc. She was prepared to borrow to grow. And that was the point, borrowing for growth. What we've now done instead, this idea that we are slaves to the market is a kind, that's the thing. I think we've shackled ourselves to, I hate to say it, things like the World Economic Forum and the IMF's view of the world. She was trying to free people up to actually trade and keep... It was good for small businesses. It was bad for big businesses. And that's what that's where we're actually at. But I'll shut up. Lowering the top rate of corporation tax, bad for big business. Steve O'Neill, explain to Paul why the money markets decided that Liz Truss needed a U-turn on her budget. And then let's try and discuss what happens next in the Conservative Party. Steve O'Neill, go for it. I think... Paul's not wrong about the fact that it wasn't just the spending of, I think it was 40-something odd billion extra. Maybe it changed to 30. There have been so many changes and U-turns on the way. But the thing was, they did that. They rubbished the idea of fiscal credibility. They didn't do an Office for Budget Responsibility forecast. They didn't show the workings. And they sacked the top Treasury civil servant who was well-known for being prudent. So all those things made the markets go, oh, God, this looks terrible, which it did look terrible, and therefore it crashed. It was, of course, a combination of things that led to the disastrous so-called mini-budget and, and then the fall of Kwarteng and, and Trust. So there's that bit. 
what's the famous quote? Is it Lyndon Johnson? The first rule of politics is counting. I was just counting who has more support. So what we are in now is a, a race to 100 MPs by Monday at 10 a.m. in the Conservative Party leadership contest. That's going to happen over the next week, and it could be over on Monday. Do you want me to go, go through the basis of that? Boyfriend? Well, I tell you what, let, let's do this first. Let's listen, just to cue this up, as to how fractious some of the backbenchers are actually have actually been in, in the last week, and how some of them actually view the current crop of the Tory frontbenchers. This whole affair is inexcusable. It, it is just, it is a pitiful reflection on the Conservative Parliamentary Party at every level. This is an absolute disgrace. As a Tory MP of 17 years, who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time, I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. So, so you seem quietly... I'm, I'm, I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10. I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. I'm sorry, it's very difficult to convey. You look just furious about this. I am. I am. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest to achieve ministerial position. And I, and I know I speak for hundreds of backbenchers who right now um, are worrying for their constituents all the time, but now worrying about their own personal circumstances because there is nothing as X as an ex MP. Paul Dodridge, Charles, MP Charles Walker there in the House of Commons. His anger was palpable. Talentless people in the front benches of the Conservative Party, a prime minister who was talentless. These are not wrong. It's, it's more that it's irrelevant. It's like, look, the system we have has delivered this. You know, we end up with having to listen to, and I'm casting no aspersions on whoever that was, but are we now saying he's talented or something? The game is basically. I think the thing, the thing is, though, Paul, just very quickly, sure. is we've never had this level of open hostility within any party within government. It's one thing to have briefings. That's you know, not strictly true. It might not have been quite as bad, but you have to remember, you know, we might not remember, but early 80s, Margaret Thatcher had like 340 economists writing a piece for the Times or signing a letter. Yeah, but, but those were MPs. They, and the, and that's not an MP who's just walked out of a, a lobby. This MP was in the House of Commons. And for him to be as honest as that, it's not a private briefing. It's not... Well, an, you say it's not... Well, the point is because it's, with respect, it's, it's because it's so negative and and outre it sounds honest i'm not saying he's dishonest what i'm saying is there is a battle for the soul of the so-called conservative party and so i I would forgive truss and quateng because i i believe that the reason this is purely speculative on my part the reason that they they tried getting this little football over the line with no one seeing it and unannounced is because it would have been smothered at birth by the so-called blob and that's what you're up against now the thing is what that guy was saying does not align with the party members. It doesn't align with the people that voted Brexit. It doesn't align with the 80 majority. It aligns with parliamentary parliamentarians, if you like. And what we need, for me, the one way to clear this out is to get, if hopefully Boris comes in, we get a quick general election, we'll probably be in opposition, but we can route out in the same way that MAGA's had to take over 
the Republican Party. We need, hopefully, Farage coming back to the Conservative Party and bringing his rump to make it a truly Conservative Party, because we don't have one. We have a centre-right, which is very sort of Lib Dem. That's, that's the problem. I don't think anything as tragic as they're trying to make out has actually happened. It's a principle. And the principle is, is that we stay in lockstep alignment with World Economic Forum, and ultimately the EU is really what the game is. And I think Kateng, Kwateng and the Trust were trying to get this out under the radar of those kind of, those kind of how can I say, Praetorian guard that watch for this kind of stuff. So that, that's my take on it. It's just like, I don't, I don't believe Every, that that guy everything's is a particular fine. great... Every, everything's fine. So Steve O'Neill. I don't think everything's bad, put it that way. Surely, Steve, one of the ways which we can determine that something is fundamentally broken in British politics is the amount of prime ministers we've had in the last six years. We've had Cameron, we've had May, we've had Johnson, we've had Truss, and now we're about to have potentially a new one, potentially a new one. We could go back to Johnson, but before we talk about that and what that means about this boomerang effect, if Johnson could come back after three months, surely something is broken at the heart of the British political system if we can have five prime ministers in six years? I, I think I think it is a, a problem, but this is a conservative thing, really, you've got to say, because it has been the Conservative Party, and to be fair, dealing with Brexit that, that's led to all this. But of course, that's what got rid of Theresa May and, and David Cameron. And what's followed has just been, I suppose, shambles. First shambles of Boris Johnson and Partygate, and then shambles of the Liz, Liz Truss. So... It's a few factors coming together, but you've got to say it's the difficulty and the turmoil of the Conservative Party politics more than anything else, I think, more, more than anything institutional in the British system. Steve, is that really fair? Because the British, the British people have had at least two says. There's the election in 2019, election in 2017, and the turmoil was already there. And they voted in a party which was still fighting amongst itself to rediscover or re to redefine its political soul. Can I jump I think in? For I, a I'm reluctant to blame the. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I don't want to, to tread on you, Steve, at all, because you're much smarter than I am. The 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 exactly right, Royfield. The the British public have elected and had referendums and elections, and with respect, those those desires have not been implemented by parliament people forget up until the 2019 election it the people were members of the tory party as well were trying to stop brexit and trying to get a second referendum etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm saying there is a i think you're right royfield i think this is a, a a problem for the conservative party alone the conservative party's basic instinct should be to represent the people and that's where we have this disconnect and that's what has to, that bubble has to, that air bubble has to be passed through the system. That, that's, that's the issue, I think, is that there is no representation of conservative or right-wing politics now in Parliament. Even after two or three attempts, the, the, the parliamentarians and the blob will not listen to the public. I'll shut up. I, I don't know completely not to relitigate the ins and the outs of Brexit again. But we have left the European Union. We do have somewhat of a standoff with Northern Ireland. And even the most fervent Remainers in Parliament are not talking about Brexit. But I do believe 
and I think with evidence, with the evidence of my own eyes and everybody else's eyes, that this instability in the Conservative Party is all down to that Brexit decision. But 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 let let us try and put the argument as to whether Brexit has happened, true Brexit, hard Brexit. So let's put all that behind us. We're in a situation whereby yet again the Conservative Party is trying to find a new leader, and this was Liz Truss's resignation statement yesterday. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Thank you. Looks like she's going to go down as being the worst British Prime Minister in in history. Not only will she have the title, the accolade of having the shortest tenure, but the Tory press, the right wing press, is completely and utterly turned against her. Steve, before we do the runners and the riders, is it right and proper? that we can have such rapidity, such a turnover in prime ministers without the British public having their say of this turmoil which is going on at the heart of British politics. Shouldn't we have a general election sometime soon? Yes, I think we should. I think it's not constitutionally required in any way, but I think there is an a sort of unwritten or understanding that generally you want to have a, an election pretty soon after a prime minister comes into office. Now, I'm not sure it changes much that we've had one new one or two new ones in short succession, but I do think there's a lot of pressure on whoever comes in next to call an election. I think they won't want to because they're going to want time to get on a better footing. And we may get on to polls later, but obviously they're quite dire for the Conservatives at the moment. But I, I think there is a very strong case for an election sooner than later. Okay, let's start with with the runners and riders. I must admit, Paul, that I didn't believe that corpse of Boris Johnson would be reanimated so soon, the political corpse. But it looks like he could well get, if not 100 MPs nominating him, near as damn it. Doesn't this show us how bankrupt and how broken the top bench of Tory MPs are, that somebody who's mired in scandal uh, mired in sleaze, he has no ethics, and has just been thrown out because of numerous scandal after scandal, has got a very good chance as being uh, Prime Minister again three months later. I mean, you, you could be right. I just, again, I think it's all of us falling, it's like we're watching some crappy kids' magic show and falling for the distraction. 
you know, Rishi Sunak was fined as well by the same people that, you know, the same process that fined former prime minister. We get bogged down in this idea that it's all mired in scandal. Not really. This, I mean, compared to what? I mean, but we, Paul, just had a la- we just had a Labour guy this morning had to drop out. We don't see that sort of reported in the same way that that final sex scandal, you know, the, the, the groper in the Conservative Party. There is a narrative going on, which I understand. And I'm not standing, look, I'm not even a Boris supporter particularly. You know, everything is too left wing for me. I want Farage, frankly. But I'm just saying it's just like, God, we get caught up in the the panto of the whole thing. And what we're missing is WEF and IMF and EU alignment. That's really the game. So basically the honesty of our politicians matters not a jot. They're in power and as long as they get things done or seem to be getting things done, it doesn't really matter whether they lie to Parliament, lie to the nation. Well, look, because look, look, look at where this the conversation started off today we really are you can't have it both ways is it the probity and the personal behavior of the prime minister or is it the markets that decide that's the fact of the matter is it's like all of that is for the birds if the markets don't like you the so-called markets and that's my problem with this it's like we will find we will find a letter a to stamp on anybody to have them omitted from the public discourse but the, the fact of the matter is it is up to the markets who is going to be your prime minister. And that's what we've just seen. It's nothing to do with personal... I I thought it was all down to the the Tory press. But anyway, I got that wrong. I thought this was all down to a a coronation between the Daily Express and maybe the Daily Mail. Well, no, that's the... This is my point. That's the cake decoration. That's not the actual cake. If you... You know, the the minute that the, the budget was released... It was the markets that then dictated the terms. Now, that's nothing to do with the the personal behaviour of people like the Prime Minister or the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I'm just saying, when the die is cast, the die is cast. The fact is, we are at the behest of the markets, not at the behest of the electorate. And that, that's that's the only kind of way I come in at this. You know, I would love to see pure democracy, but we don't have that. So we have to go through all this kind of rearranging deck chairs and pretend that there's some sort of logic to it. No, it's just like it didn't suit the markets. And therefore, people, heads had to roll. Okay. Illegal prolegation of Parliament, flat redisbursement, Owen Patterson lobbying scandal, party gate. It's just stuff. Uh, it's just stuff. Miscon- you, you, but, you but the, all, day, all this stuff, all this illegal, stuff. Illegal wars in Iraq. And Tony Blair has had a massive stain on his reputation ever since. All right. Steve O'Neill, and then we're going to come to you, Damilair. Steve O'Neill, run, take us through the runners and the riders. Who are the people who are throwing their hat into the ring or who we suspect are going to throw their hat in the ring to be the next leader of, of Great Britain? And let's go through that. Yeah, I'm doing my, my counting on the BBC and Spectator websites and checking. So mm. I believe the only person with her hat actually in the ring is Penny Mordaunt, who is a former Defence Secretary, a former International Development Secretary when we used to have such a thing. Her father famous was in, in the army, that kind of background. She's only got 22, I think, supporters declared so far. She's quite far behind. Favourite, once again, is Sunak with 88. He's, he's, he's pretty close. To, he needs 100 to get through the first round. They all need 100. Sunak's already got 88, and he's the favourite. And the bookies that I've seen are putting him as favourite. Yet to declare, but everyone expects him to. And then, of course, we've talked about Boris. The, the, the rumour mill is already going that he's preparing for another run. And even though he hasn't declared, 50-odd MPs are already saying, oh, they want Boris back. Um, 
So I, it looks like it's one of those three. A lot of other, or one or two other big beasts like current Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and current Chancellor Jeremy Hunt rule themselves out. So it's looking like those three, but you do never know with these things. Talking of Ben Wallace, this is him talking about the reason why he's not going to stand. You really have to want it as a Prime Minister to do that job. You have to really, really think it, it's the job for you. For me, I feel that I can add the best value in keeping people safe at Defence by being the Defence Secretary. It's the job that I have been doing and it's the job I intend to stay doing. So I'm not going to be standing for Prime Minister this time and the same reasons really apply as last time. At the moment, I would lean towards Boris Johnson. I think he will still have some questions to answer around, obviously, that investigation. But I know when I was Secretary of Defence, he invested in Defence, he supported me, he supported the actions this country has taken to keep us safe. At the moment, I'm leaning towards that. In 2019, he won a general election with a huge majority. You know, he was legitimately sent into Parliament as the Prime Minister based on the vote of the whole electorate, not just on Tory members, not just on members of Parliament. That, he got a mandate, and I think that's an important thing for all of us to bear in mind. You know, I'll be keen to see what Rishi Zunai also says on defence and security and investment. And I think it's just important to reiterate to your viewers, there can't be economic security without national security. Uh, and therefore, you know, those candidates need to answer that question as much as what they're going to do in the here and now about the economy. Paul Dodridge, the Conservative Party has just run out of steam, hasn't it? And it's bringing back, potentially is going to bring back the one person who sees us having some connection to the great British public. This is an act of utter political desperation. I don't know about desperation. I think, yes, I do think the the Conservative Party is over. I mean, you can always still use the name. It needs the it needs to be taken over like MAGA with the Republicans. I know I said that earlier. It, it is pretty much over because it, it doesn't actually look at the fight they're having. It genuinely doesn't represent conservative values. It's it's since Cameron's time, really. It's turned into a kind of retirement home for Lib Dems. And so the the. <laughs> The, the wait, a minute, wait a minute, Steve. As a as a, a card carrying member of the Liberal Democratic Party, do you think you're going to retire to the Conservative Party some anytime soon? Not at all. In fact, I'm no longer a Lib Dem member, and I'm actually leaning a bit further left these days. So I'm going to the other way. Good heavens! Politically, you're coming home then. Sorry, Paul. As you oh, were, that's mate. okay. No, no, I'll I'll be I'll be brief. No, I mean this is the problem. It's it's actually a very it's it's quite a liberal party. It's quite a Lib Dem party, and it's trying to be centre right, etc. But a lot of that comes with a lot of baggage. In its current incarnation, yes, I think the Conservative Party is toast. What I'm saying is, I I think that if Sunak gets in, which is the most likely. And we, we've been told he's basically going to be the leader, then I think we might be waiting for the full two years for a general election. If Boris gets in, I think we'll have a general election very soon. And like I said, I think the local the local party, what do they call those things? The organisations or whatever, the little, the little local party groups, the Conservative Party will actually bring in new, more conservative value candidates, probably some kind of coalition with Farage and the Reform Party to reinstate what was the Conservative Party at the time of Thatcher's defenestration. I think that's the play. Otherwise, it continues under Sunak to be a Lib Dem party, which is completely annihilated by the Labour Party anyway, but in two years' time. Steve O'Neill, are we really looking at a realignment of British politics? Is that fundamentally really what has happened since 2016? And that realignment is really maybe pivoting around 
at the centre of the Conservative Party. And that is the reason for all this political turbulence. Yeah, I think the short answer to that is yes, we have seen a realignment since 2016. It's why the Conservatives won big in 2019. But the coalitions that were really solid before, they used to have very solid votes for Labour and Conservatives, they're all over the place now. And I think that's what the polls show. The idea that Labour have got over 50%, and I think on some some polls, the Tories less than 20 I think people don't have it a home anymore quite as firmly as they did. And so you have this realignment, but it can kind of flip back as it's done. And I think we can see a lot of movement in the polls. Just on coalitions and political parties, because um, they're all, all coalitions. There's One Nation Tories, there's that more Thatcherite Tories, there's Tories who are probably happier with public spending, but are more socially conservative. My question back, if I can. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If, if, if Paul, for example, you think that that's a problem, would you be up for proportional representation or something similar that would actually represent that's obviously the system to of how we elect people and we have a first past post at the moment but that in that sort of system you get more smaller parties with seats and normally conservatives are, are against that idea so i'm interested with the polls for it oh 100 for it yeah no absolutely look i mean look what it did last time it got us of the eu I love proportional representation. I want pure democracy. This is the thing. I don't mind what the answer is. What's frustrating? What was interesting, there was, I can't remember which MP it was that was was on some show the other day saying that he's going to back Boris simply because that's the leader we put to the country. That's the leader that was voted for. This is being done in back rooms by politicians that you've never heard of. And so... I want pure representative democracy and whatever transpires from that, I'll happily take. I'm very uneasy about the fact that we are so far removed from the things that people voted for and we sit rubbing our hands. You say about proroguing parliament. I'm like, good, let's prorogue parliament. I don't care because it was trying to deliver on the vote of the actual majority of the population. That's a good thing. Honouring Parliament, worshipping Parliament and parliamentarians, a building that was only built in the 19th century, by the way, is, I think, it's a kind of a weird, medieval, archaic kind of deferential approach. It's like, why on earth 
I don't know why we can't vote every six months myself. I just think the whole thing should be proportional representation and it should be a, a living, a living, breathing democracy with PR up the wazoo and let the, di- let the dice fall as they may then. What we have at the moment is every five years, groups that don't represent you can go and form cabals with their own agenda and you have no say. And I just think it's from the left or the right. I think that's horrible. So fundamentally, really, what you're talking about is Switzerland on steroids, where just about anything of, of any weight politically is vote is voted on, and there's some kind of referenda. And and in and whilst yes, Parliament, as you understand it now, the Palace of Westminster, the current one was built what in the eighteen what thirties, late eighteen twenties, one one or the other. It's not the building, it's the institution, which has been with us since Edward the First, since the thirteenth century. Surely, Paul, Steve O'Neill. Obviously, the Lib Dems has been the party all about proportional representation historically. If and and there is some pressure within elements of the Labour Party for Keir Starmer to adopt that in a future policy of, of the Labour Party, it's going to become way too soon, maybe for the next general election is going to ha- happen in two years' time. Why should the Labour Party maybe go in for proportional representation? And if they should, what system should they bring in? It's a tricky one because, of course, anytime you get into power under a first-past-the-post system, you think, well, that system might not be so bad. And I think the the clamour for PR came when Labour was you know, facing an, another 80-seat Conservative majority. So I I've noticed that Keir Starmer's quite cautious about it. I think I think the reason and the argument has always been for the left to back it is that the left is more split traditionally than the right. So you've got small parties like the Green Party, but has significant, you know, not insignificant support. The Lib Dems, obviously, and Labour all occupying the kind of left to centre left space. And and that has that, that disadvantage in first past the post. So that, that is the reason that Starmer maybe should And, and the Scottish here. nationalists in Scotland. And Plaid Cymru. Of course, yes. Now is the time, if you're in the audience, to raise your hand and to come up on stage and we can widen out the conversation. Maybe what we can do is maybe look in a little more detail about the potential runners and riders. But then also, I think we should also really reflect on the last 44 days, which has just been something which none of us have ever seen in in our lifetimes before. So if you're in the audience and you'd like to come up on stage, please raise your hand. We'd love to have you and your input. And if you are an American or from somewhere else on planet Earth, if you've got a well-founded, innocent question about and it could be like, what the fuck is going on? You can come up too. We don't, you don't have to be an expert on British politics to, to be part of Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is a podcast which has been running for some eight years. If you listen to this at home, thank you for sticking with us. Well, but why don't you go into Apple Podcasts and write us a, a review? We'd love a five-star review. But if you only think we deserve three, go and do it anyway. Be honest to yourself and, to, and, and be true to yourself. Rene, you are unmuting, sir. Yes. So, Paul, I, I have a question. You, you mentioned several times where you would like the Conservative Party to be, which is not where it is now. You mentioned MAGA as an example. I don't think you, you seriously think that the Brits would take something like make Britain great again. So what, what do you think would this Conservative Party most stand for? Like the top three points, if it would be where you think it should be, and what would it no longer stand for in order to, to have this profile, you imagine? I'm not sure I agree. I do think it would take a MAGA. I think it is for the majority of 
Brexit, hardcore Brexit voters, I would say it's controlling the borders and controlling no, what do they call it? No level playing field with Europe, I think would be important. Low taxation. And so I think for me, that would be the top three. But absolute control of immigration is, I think, number one for everybody on this side. The very fact that many Brexiteers feel it's absolutely absurd that we can't deport people who come to the country illegally, and that's a prima facie illegally, is sticks in the craw. So I think that would be the the number one. Number two, like I said, removal of alignment with uh, the EU. Number three, low taxation. I think it's somewhat significant that one of the things which has brought down Liz Truss is the fact that many elements of the Conservative Party, and I think this will probably make your point for you, that the Conservative Party is not Conservative anymore, that those One Nation Tories just said that the optics were wrong. Even if ideologically you believe in low taxes, this is not the time to bring them in when we are struggling to pay off our COVID bill, as are many other Western nations who've who tried to bail out their economy during COVID. And when we have a cost of living crisis, when we have fuel bills, which have skyrocketed some 400% in, in 18 months, this was not the time to be cutting taxes when we needed to support the least vulnerable in society. And that, to me, maybe does point to potentially a pivot point in, in UK politics. But Roger, you've joined us on stage, sir. I'm guessing, because I do know your politics, that some of what Paul Dodgers has said could well chime with you and probably sent a shiver down your leg. Hence, you decided to raise your hand. But Roger Mayhem, welcome to the stage. What is your question? I just want to know what you guys are doing over there that allows you in 44 days to shame a politician into resigning. I have a governor in the state of Washington that come January will have been in office for 10 years. And so I'd like to know the secret to shaming these politicians to resign be a parliamentary democracy, have a party which is run out of ideological steam, have second-rate politicians running the country, have a restive population, and finally have the press turn against you, and then also commit political and economic Harry Keary six years ago by voting, by being a turkey voting for Christmas, i.e. Brexit. Put all of those things together, sir, and you can get rid of a politician in 44 days. I love it. The other thing I'll touch on real quickly, you you were saying about lowering taxes. I I come from a school of thought that believes that there's never, never a bad time to do the right thing. And so lowering (laughs) taxes is there's, there's always, that's always the right thing to do. But honestly, there are a lot of economists out there that have advised on how to, to get past this global inflation that we're, that we're looking at. And But the, 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 ones, the ones that come up with the real solutions are the ones that are most easily ignored. And I think most countries don't want to talk about austerity measures, which usually come in, in the flavor of both cutting spending as well as raising taxes and using that as you know, the way to more rapidly get out of, get out of these situations. What, what I've been reading about, and I'm, and I'm happy to go dig up the, the link and provide it to you, is, is research that's done that suggests that you can, you can move forward with austerity measures that cut spending and lower taxes. And the idea of the lowering the taxes is to be able to keep you know, more money in circulation to keep the, the economy stimulated while you're, 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 you're cutting spending. And so, again, I understand that there's, you know, that's not something that 
a lot of countries have tried. It's not something that, that people of a particular political leaning would even want to think about. But I, I, I think that people should read the research on it. And, and whether or not we get to the point where people are comfortable with the idea of of coupling you know, tax decreases with spending decreases, at very least, everyone should be talking about cutting spending. And what's sad is that here in the U.S., we're talking about spending more money and then and then we call these spending bills an inflation reduction act you know increasing spending is not going to reduce inflation and we we need to beat down these morons that don't understand economics at all steve o'neill i don't know which bits of what roger said there we should and could unpack but but in britain yes there is from the 1980s there's been this strain in, in British political thinking, i.e. on the conservative side, that we always need to be restraining the power of the state. And one of the ways that we do that is by, by, by slashing spending whilst, uh, dare I say it, borrowing loads. What Roger seems to be saying to me feels very antithetical to conventional, modern conventional economic thinking. Is this where we fundamentally do see a divide between American economics and European? And I think this way, we Britain, which has been somewhat mid-Atlantic, pun completely intended, seems to be veering much more to a more European model. Is that me being a lefty coming out with wishful thinking, or can you discern that shift in our kind of our importance around tax as well? Well, it's a quite a, a lot there. I, I think, yeah, Euro Europeans have always, I think, backed spending on public services maybe a bit more than Americans have. On one of Roger's points, I think it was about the difference between new outgoings and new incomings. And I, I believe, without being an economist, that the Americans can get away with that more, being the kind of biggest economy in the world in the reserve currency. Brits have gotten away with lots of, or relatively high amounts of borrowing until quite recently it all came back to back to haunt us. The one thing I'd say about cutting public spending is, of course, that as an ex-Lib Dem staff during the coalition period, I know we tried it and we and they cut public services back quite a lot. So the idea that in Britain, for example, we could cut spending now, we've already got really damaged services, would be challenges. I don't, I, I don't see that, that we could do that. Corey Stark, you've joined us on stage. Let, let's say that we can continue to cut public spending. What's going to be next in, in the chopping block? Do we just wholesale chop to the NHS, the National Health Service, or is there, or do we cut back on defence? There you go. You're, you're, you're the Chancellor and you have to rein back public spending. What are you chopping, Corey? Oh, great. Well, that's a really easy question. Thanks. Oof. None of the above. So I come to it with bias, almost Royal Marines reservist. So, and I believe wholeheartedly in the things that people, the likes of Tobias Elwood, Tom Tugendhat, and to a lesser degree, Ben Wallace, things that they say about the military and the need to keep spending at, a, at an appropriate level. Which is uh, what, 3%? Ben, ben Wallace has basically said yes. it should be at 3%. Liz Truss yes. has pledged to keep it at 3%. So, okay, so, we, so we're not going to come back on defence. We're going to keep building aircraft carriers. We're going to keep on giving our Ukrainian friends arms, maintain our bases throughout the world. The British Army is going to be pumped, primed and ready for any international emergency. So we're not cutting back on defence. What are we cutting back on, Corey? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we don't spend enough on defence. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned aircraft carriers. We have two new aircraft carriers that 
don't even have, never mind a full complement of fighter jets. Both of them don't even have half of what they're supposed to have. So we're, we're, we're behind, I think, on defence spending. So 3% a minimum. If times were better, I think it probably should push up to even 4 I, I I was reading a piece in, I think it was the FT yesterday, and the, the point that was being made was that, essentially, unlike the 80s, we don't have state institutions to sell anymore because they've all been sold off. We don't have the oil and gas revenues that they had in the 80s anymore either. So it really, it's for me, if it was me, and I guess that is the question you're asking me, it's an unpopular one. I think for me, I would be looking at curbing back spending when it comes to the speed at which we get to net zero. And I know that is obviously a very unpopular opinion. And that's Good not heavens. because I'm some wacky. So you're going to uh, burn, burn, rape, and pillage the the planet because so so our children have nothing to in, inherit. Well, if it's the choice between, you know, having hospitals where our children can be born in safely and schools where they can be educated properly, and pushing back the net zero target by ten years, I, I, yeah. Mm, goodness, there, there is. It's just because that you know what. What else is there? What else is there? Thank you for that, Corey. Paul, I, I think for me, Corey makes a really good point. Corey makes a really good point. And it, he did talk about this uh, article in the FT. And the FT is not the most left-leaning of newspapers at all, right? We don't have any more family silver to sell off. Trickle-down economics, which is what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were advocating for, does give you um, a hit to the economy, a sugar hit, but that's exactly what it is. Structurally, the last 40 years have told us since Thatcher and, and Reaganomics that trickle-down economics favours those with cash, those with wealth, and they don't dispense with their money further down the economic tree. They do a little. They do a little bit of extra spending, a little bit more of investment, but actually what they do is they park their money actually off seas so surely trickle down economics this more kind of libertarian and i say that thinking of european libertarians way of managing uh, our finances it, it, it's somewhat for the birds and and maybe this is another reason why we've hit to this kind of pivot point this realignment potentially of british politics because that old way 40 years old way of doing things is seen to be discredit or at least not working even the financial markets don't like it anymore well yes even the financial markets don't like it that's fine that's like saying the gamblers at a horse race don't like what's best for the horse it's like yeah i don't care about what the markets want the point see it's easy to say trickle down economics don't work nobody from my side calls it trickle down economics the idea it's the very idea that we're so comfortable that we should hand more of what an individual earns over to the state that's the bit that's for the birds. The United States takes in about, and correct me if I'm wrong on the figures, I think its economy is about 23 trillion a year, something like that, 23, 24 trillion. And it takes about 3 trillion in taxation. It spends 25% of that on military spending. So 25% of its actual tax yield is spent on military spending. Why? Because its actual business model is to protect the value of that dollar, which is $30 trillion in debt. We are paying to support the, what's the word, the power of a currency so that we can carry on borrowing or something. We are basically creating a war machine to back up 
the significance or the importance or the strength of an individual currency. That's the, the loop we've got ourselves into. So when you say even markets, I kind of don't give a shit what the markets think. We've lost sight of people actually making stuff and selling stuff within nations to one another. We've lost sight of that and we've become a huge casino. We stand, our countries now are what works best for currencies. Why Nobody's ever been able to explain to me why it's important for 27 countries in the EU to all have the same currency. It sounds like the currency is more important than the individual nations. And this is this is the issue. It's like we've all sort of sleepwalked into this position where we have handed over. We can literally go, well, the markets don't even like it. Who gives a shit what the markets think? The markets are gamblers on our daily lives. It doesn't have to be that way. So for me, I know I might be a bit sort of cloud cuckoo land on this, but it's like we're just accepting the way this globalist way of doing things. And I just think I don't. I, I, there's no reason why we can't all go back to being nations trading with one another. We don't need to sign up to protecting global currencies. Mm. I, I know this is a conversation which you and I have, have had before, but as a, as a student of history, being Western European nations, being fully sovereign, trading with each other historically has led to a war every, every generation. But you you know we, we could you could argue that maybe we live in a more connected a more empathetic time and and we wouldn't have wars every, every generation and you'll know Europe. and you'll know if you're a student of history before the invention of the federal reserve wars were shorter when countries had to actually pay for their own wars they were way shorter we now have a perpetual war we're never not at war so i hear you but again, it's like you tell me where when, when we're not having a war and we're having a war for these reasons. That that's the problem. You know what? That's technically not correct what you just said about the length of wars. The Napoleonic Wars, there's one country which could it actually this makes your point, though fundamentally what you said about the Federal Reserve is actually wrong. The Napoleonic Wars went on from, what, 1792, when the Austrians decided to roll into France to try and roll back the Republicans, to 1815. The one country that could keep on fighting was the United Kingdom fighting against France, and it was because of the Bank of England. So whilst you're technically wrong with what you just said, I take the point that back in the old days, what happened was a king would have to raise taxes and or from the money that, you know, the money markets in, in Tuscany, in Florence, sorry. And that when that money ran out, the troops then went home. However, great point, Paul. This is a last shout for anybody who wants to come up on stage. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience and you're thinking, what is this Mid-Atlantic? Go to a podcatcher of your choice and go and download some of the latest episodes. We did a show yesterday about the immediate impact of Liz Truss resigning. We did a show the day before where we spoke about online safety and how online is distorting society and, and, and legislation for social media. I find that's, that was utterly a fascinating show. So go to a podcast of your choice, type in Mid-Atlantic, and you can enjoy the podcast there. And if you are listening to this at home, download the Clubhouse app and you can be part of a live recording of the podcast. Roger Mayhem, I think you're going to be the last person to speak unless somebody comes up and, and raises their hand but you did unmute roger awesome i'll be quick i just wanted to back up paul on his point about in economics nobody there, there, there's no such term as trickle down economics in, in economics i think when people say that they're using a political smear term to discuss what's known as supply side economics and and, and so what, what i find interesting about that topic though is that 
the people that are criticizing the idea that, that, that money can trickle down through an organization, which, by the way, I'm not in support of like you know, lowering tax taxes specifically for large corporations if you're not planning to do it for small and mid-sized companies. I think that's terrible. I don't believe in bailouts. I don't believe that the government has a role in using taxpayer dollars to fund these corporations, period, full stop. But what's the interesting thing is that the same people that will use this smear and say, oh, well, we know the trickle down economics doesn't work, are the same people that will advocate for pillaging people's tax dollars, sending it to a central government with the with the, with the, this insane description about how that money is going to trickle down into services that are somehow going to benefit us better than keeping the money local. So, and then the final thing I'll say is a correction to what Paul was saying about the money spent on military. Actually, 65% of the U.S. budget is spent on mandatory spending, which is covering things like Medicare, Social Security, and a few other things. That's 65%. That means the other 35% goes into all other spending. So the idea that 40% goes to military spending is just mathematically impossible. I, I do take that we spend a lot of say, money on military. I didn't say 40%. There's, there's, there's I, the ability to say, cut it, but, but, it's, but it, it's, actually, it's actually not as big. I uh, didn't say 40%. I didn't say 40%. I said 25%. Yeah, I don't even believe it's twenty five. I like I'll, I'll go I'll go pull the numbers, but the big spenders are the Medicare and the and Social Security, which which by the way is going to go broke. So we got to fix that. All right, this has been a, a great conversation, Damilare. You have utterly have the last word, and then we're going to just for shits and giggles, we're going to play Kia Starmer rapping on the mic in the House of Commons one last time, Damilare. Yeah, no, it was really a question for the panel. However, if, you know, we don't have the time for that, then... Go on, Uh, quickly ask it. It's all right, go for it. I just wanted to focus on, you know, the last word being about the Conservative Party and, you know, what do you think the main things that they need to change in order for their leadership to be trusted again by the British public? Good heavens. What what a, what a wonderful question. You know, you took the words right out of my mouth or more to the point, you should be hosting this show. Fantastic question. Paul Dodridge, what did the Conservative Party have to do to be trusted again by the British people? Oh, my God. It's not going to make any difference. Whoever's acceptable and bright and shiny and uh, unhindered by the markets will be allowed to carry on being prime minister. Yeah, Roger's right. My figures are completely off. It's 10 to 13 percent. So I'm an idiot. But the idea that public approval has anything to do with the presence of a prime minister, that's the bit for the birds. The country's run by the civil service. Steve O'Neill, you have the honour of answering this question last. I'm going to wrap the show up. Oh, thank you. I think they need to get back the reputation for credibility, for being reliable, for not should dare say messing things up that used to be the respectable reason to vote conservative because those wacky labor lot might crash the economy but at least the conservatives wouldn't do any harm i think it's a long way back to restore that and this gave me such a bloody giggle this is pmqs this week this is liz truss's last pmqs where sir keir starmer the leader of the labor party was in devastating form using the word gone some wags have decided to put this to music. Let's throw it over to the leader of the opposition, young Keon Wayne, Starmzy. You've got 15 seconds, my guy, let's go. God, corporation tax cut, God, 20p tax cut, God, two-year energy freeze, God, tax-free shopping, God, economic credibility, God, and her supposed best friend, the formula chancellor, he's God, God. God. <laughs>
Paul Dodridge, thank you for joining us on stage. Ditto to you, Steve O'Neill, Demilare, Roger Mayhem, Corey Stark and Rene Ashaik. To our two panellists of of note, shall we say, of note, complete the wrong expression, who have been with us for the whole show. Paul Dudridge, where can people catch up with your stuff on the internet? No, they won't want to. Just... just... <laughs> <laughs> even I don't follow me, so don't worry about it. Just pull Dudridge at Twitter if anybody's even vaguely interested, but thank you. Ditto, same question to you, Steve O'Neill. Well, if I may, I'll plug my, my podcast, No Man's Lands, at Pod No Man's Land on Twitter, which, of course, Royfield, you are one of our very distinguished guests. I, I think I was probably the best guest that you ever had on. Absolutely the best guest. Our only three-time guest, actually. Oh, well, put it like this, I'm, I'm waiting to be your only fourth time guest. But anyway, let, let's not push things too much. Don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, people like Paul. We just try and win them over with sense and with logic and with reason. So we don't demonise those who vote the other way. We try and we try and win them over the strength of our argument. This is me, Royfield Brown, g- giving you, I think, the fourth Mid-Atlantic in seven days, which has got to be some level of a record. But keep following us. And thank you for everybody who's been writing us, been doing those reviews for us on Apple iTunes. We did give you a shout out on the last show. And we will continue to do that. So we'll probably do it once every two weeks. We get a few few reviews and then we'll give you a shout out at the back end of the show. So keep that up and you will hear your name on the podcast. And that's been it. Another week, another set of podcasts. By this time next Friday, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland would have a new prime minister. Let's hope, let's hope it's not Boris Johnson. Take care, everyone. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.